Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Last week, we began a sermon series exploring the covenant affirmations, which are the central ideals that the congregations of the Evangelical Covenant Church hold in common. That's our denomination. Now, while their beliefs... They're not just beliefs. They're also part of a process that helps us to become more like the God in whom we put our trust. So last week, we began with the first affirmation, the centrality of the word of God. And we explored how the word that the scriptures describe is Jesus, the logos. And also, God's spirit works through the scriptures in our lives. This is central to who we are as covenanters and as believers. So we're going to pick up there today If the word is central to our faith, if it's a major way that God is working in our lives, then what does the scriptures tell us? What is the story that it tells us? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Sam of Amittai, saying, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. Okay, so we're clearly not going to go through the entire Bible today, but The story of Jonah really describes the story of God in a nutshell. It's a short little book. It's about 88 verses and four chapters long, found somewhere towards the middle of the second half of the Old Testament. In this book, like the rest of Scripture, God is actually the main character. The word of the Lord came to. God begins the story. So who are our other characters? Well, first we have Jonah, son of Amittai. We first hear about Jonah in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14. Now, this is roughly between the years of 782 and 753 BCE, and things weren't really going great for Israel. First, they were a nation that was split due to a number of internal conflicts. Second, the borders of Israel were under constant assault from a number of enemy nations around them who were taking more and more and more of their territory. That is, until God decides to take pity on Israel. He tells one of the prophets to let the king know that God would give the army victory in reclaiming their lost land. Now that prophet was Jonah, and it happened just the way that he said it would. So we learn that Jonah is a prophet who is directly associated with the national borders, which is important because for Israel in particular, the land was seen as directly connected to the blessing of God. The land was a big part of their identity. It was a part of their story from about five to 800 years earlier when God led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. Now, in Jonah's time, the primary nation responsible for these border attacks were the Assyrians. So we are now introducing the final main character in our story, the city of Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrians were... How shall I say this politely? They were horrible. They were known for their brutality and war and their take-no-prisoners, burn-it-all-down attitude. Whole nations were wiped from the map at their hand. One commentary I read actually compared them to the Nazis. They were the merciless new superpower, ambitious and cruel, feared by the rest of the world. Most of the land that Israel regained in Jonah's time was retaken from the Assyrians. 
So we have this prophet who's passionate about his nation and about their borders, and he's now told, go to the capital city of your worst enemy and prophesy God's message of repentance. And this is Jonah's response. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So this is a never-before-heard-of moment. The very role of prophet was to deliver God's messages to his people, which by necessity means being well-connected to hearing God's voice. Yet Jonah runs away from God, which means he runs away from even his home. He goes through the Israeli port city of Joppa, which is a super risky thing to do because it was under control of the enemy nation of the Philistines. You may remember David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. And he buys a ticket for Tarshish, which is a city ancient sources tell us was really far from everything else. That's about all they say about it. We don't know where it is. In other words, Jonah is going in the exact opposite direction of where he was asked by God to go. It continued, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship over into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. I never understand how anyone can fall asleep on a boat. I just don't get it. Up until this point, Jonah has been completely silent. God says, deliver this message to Nineveh. So he turns, he runs in the opposite direction to Joppa, boards a ship for Tarshish, goes down into the hold of the ship, and promptly falls asleep. He never says a word. The sailors, on the other hand, are all words right now, but they're mostly words of panic. They've already prayed fervently to their gods. Now, this is a pluralistic, um, polytheistic society. And they are currently throwing their cargo overboard when they remember that there's another guy downstairs who hasn't prayed yet because he's asleep. So the next thing that they do is they cast lots to figure out which person on the ship is the one responsible for this calamity of a storm that wasn't supposed to happen. It's sort of like picking the short straw. They believed, in fact, much like the Hebrews did, that the divine influence of whatever God they believed in would use their lots to tell them which one of them was the problem. So they do this a bunch of different times just to be sure that it's going to be accurate, and each time the same culprit comes up, Jonah. And so they ask him, why? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Ah, he speaks. But these are not words of comfort. This storm is his fault because he's running from God. He admits that himself. But it's not just his God, but the God, the one who created the land and the sea, the God above all other gods. And so he recommends that they then toss him overboard to save the ship. Now, they do their best not to do that. They're actually 
seem to be pretty decent guys who fear for his safety even though he doesn't. But they eventually do the only thing left, which is to try throwing him overboard. So they pray together these words, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. For you, O Lord, they have done, uh, have done as it pleased you. Again, they kind of seem like decent guys. But nevertheless, they honor his request and toss him over into the sea. And the text says that these sailors feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Interesting. This is a turning point for Jonah. Deep down, he knows it's his fault. And I think this is where we start to see his understanding of things start to come up to the surface. See, the storm is not really just a storm. The scripture says that God hurled a great wind upon the sea. Now, that word for wind is one that we should all have heard before, ruach in Hebrew. It's the same word for breath, even used for spirit. God's word continues to pursue Jonah. There are consequences for others if he doesn't fulfill the mission with which he has been tasked, namely the people of Nineveh. It's when Jonah gives himself back to the wind, back to the breath, back to the spirit, that the sea calms down. Jonah doesn't think he can go to Nineveh to make amends, but at least he can help the sailors. So he has them toss him overboard into the depths of a watery grave. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. See, God's not done with Jonah, much like God is not yet done with Nineveh. Now, the giant fish or the whale or whatever we want to call it, sea monster, is the part everybody remembers about the book of Jonah, right? Everybody's seen the VeggieTales movie, I hope. (laughs) The songs have been in my head like all week. It's fantastic. The irony, I think, is that the whale is somewhat incidental to the story. The point actually isn't the whale. The point is the sea. Now, you've heard me say this before. The sea for the Hebrews represented chaos and death. So you might say that this is kind of a burial. You might even say it's a baptism, a death to disobedience. Jonah's in the belly of this giant fish for three days, and then he begins to pray. It's this beautiful prayer. It's the entirety of chapter two. But the final verses convey pretty much the bulk of the prayer. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He's saying this inside a fish. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And so he finishes, and then the fish spits Jonah back onto dry land. Jonah's cast into the sea of death, and then rescued by God, and then sent back into the land of the living. Sort of a, a resurrection, you might say, a rebirth. So the second affirmation in the Evangelical Covenant Church is this the necessity of new birth. In this affirmation, we affirm the story of the scriptures as we spoke of last week, that the world was created for a relationship with its creator, that God blessed his creation with abundant life, but that humanity chose instead to rebel. 
Now, the human rebellion against the ways and wisdom of our God and our creator has not fundamentally changed throughout the history of our race. Adam and Eve, and then Cain and Abel, they're only the first in a long line of stories in which we see illustrated the human penchant for rebellion. We still treat our relationships and our sexuality and our wealth with the same consumerism that we use to seek pleasure and fame and power. We still want our independence from everyone else. This is not new. This is the cyclical story of the human race. But so too is the fact that God's love for his creation has also not changed. And so those who follow Jesus believe that even in humanity's continued rebellion, God continues to pursue us with this relentless, reckless, self-abandoning love. We believe what the scriptures say, that in that pursuit, God came into his creation and became a part of it, taking the form of a man named Jesus, who gave himself to the cross and to death to create a path to reconcile us back into that relationship with our creator. Because here's the thing. When you rebel against the sustainer and the giver itself, when you choose to separate yourself from life, the only other option is death. We are not capable of sustaining our own lives. It is not possible to be a self-made person. Like here in Jonah, Jonah is the one who breaks the relationship. It's back to the borders thing again. Borders are about identity. Inside these lines, we are God's chosen people. Outside of those lines, they are not. Jonah's all about the lines. But then God just goes and he sends Jonah outside the lines. He gives him a mission much like those that Jonah had done many times before. And Jonah then is the one who turns tail and runs because he disagrees with the mission. This is the same choice made by the first humans who chose independence, who chose to trust themselves to this strange serpent instead of trusting their creator and friend. See, the story of Jonah is the story of Eden. They were doing so well, and a choice was then placed before them, and they chose a poor path that led them into trouble. Relationships take two parties, not just one. Both parties need to respect and participate in creating conditions for the relationship to thrive. Now, God is the one who knows how all this stuff works best because, you know, God's the one who made it. And furthermore, God's love didn't change in all of this. So Adam and Eve knew this, but they were the ones who became convinced that the God they trusted was holding out on them. And so rather than trusting the relationship, they chose instead to pursue what he told them was not good for them. Jonah, too, should know that God is trustworthy. But he's an actual mouthpiece of God in the world. But he ran because he trusted in his own wisdom, his own anger, his own rules over his relationship with the God he served. But the contrast is kind of funny if you think about it, because the sailors, they're all pagans, the scripture says that they then make vows to the God of Jonah, the one who rescued them from the storm. You know, the, the way that their gods didn't. Because God rescued, they believed. Now we hear this language 
throughout the rest of Scripture. You see it over and over and over again. But it's most importantly the language that we see in the story of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, because God offers a restored relationship, those who believe are saved. Now, the second affirmation does not simply end with the choice to believe, because the scriptures don't end with the choice. Belief is not just about choosing a side. Belief is as much about behavior. When God offers us rescue, God offers us not only a path outside of our current brokenness, but a path beyond our brokenness, a path to a new life that lasts, a new life not just for us, but for all of creation. Prophets like Jonah, Micah, Amos, Huldah, prophets like John the Baptist, prophets like Jesus, were known for using the word repent as the primary word in their message. Now, to repent is actually a word picture. It simply means to turn 180 degrees and walk the other direction. To repent means to live in a totally new way. To Nicodemus, for example, he's a Pharisee who's having this late-night conversation with Jesus. Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. See, salvation is not just about being rescued. It's a new birth into a completely new, transformed life, into a restored relationship with our Creator. Now, keep in mind, to be made new completely is, let's call it complicated. Think again about all the habits that we have learned, quite literally from birth. We're all born into this broken world, and we're raised with brokenness as, let's call it, our native language. It's baked into our culture, into our families, into our experiences, and so it becomes instinctual. It becomes habitual. Habits are powerful things. What we call spiritual formation or Christian formation or discipleship, or if you want to really use the $50 word, sanctification, is the process by which we unlearn the brokenness that has become a habit. And we learn new habits to replace the old ones. Now transformation, that means, is not an instantaneous thing. There are moments that that happens. But usually it means a lifelong process of learning new habits to a life, uh, new life, sorry, let me start again. Learning new habits of a life freed from the prison of independence, from the pursuit of our own power and authority, from death and the things that cause death in all of its forms. We are then freed to a relationship with the author of life who loves us. That means that each day, each moment, we must continue to learn how to choose life. Theologian and missiologist Christopher Wright writes this. Salvation does not mean rescuing people out of creation to some other realm, but bringing back God's blessing into creation through God's redeeming and transforming power. Salvation, then, is God's mission of redemptive blessing, restoring his whole creation to what was lost because of human sin and rebellion. Salvation is not a doctrine that we believe in or a condition we find ourselves in. Salvation is a story we participate in. 
the story of what God initiated through Abraham and accomplished through Christ. So we've used the idea of growing a bonsai tree every week uh, in this series as a way of illustrating the affirmation. Now, last week, we recognized that just as a bonsai tree is easily recognized by a number of very specific characteristics, so too is a covenanter and a Christian. And so, to continue the analogy, at some point, somebody has to decide to plant a bonsai tree. The the gardener plants a seed or takes clippings from another bonsai tree to start the process, and then waters and prunes, and then prunes and waters, and waters and prunes... And once the tree is big enough, the tree receives a wire harness that wraps around the trunk so that the tree can now start to um, grow into its shape. Uh, It's guided into that classic shape that we recognize as a bonsai. And as the tree continues to grow, it will eventually create seeds. It will bear fruit that, oddly enough, end up about the same size as the fruit of a full-grown tree. Now, one of the sites that I referenced uh, to learn more about bonsai said this. Bonsai is not a race, nor is it a destination. It is a never-ending journey. I liken this to the second affirmation. While God reaches out to us as we start to grow, we are offered the structure of discipleship, of relationship, which is like the wire harness that is meant to help guide and shape us into a life that resembles the example of Jesus. We don't do this alone. We do this in community with God, the gardener, and with other believers to help shape our habits. And because we're all connected, one of those habits is making God's mission our mission. God asks us to bear fruit, which means that we are to seek the welfare of the city, the nation, the world, to bring life wherever we go into and in because of all of creation, to invite those around us into the same relationship that we have with our creator. Which brings us back to Jonah, who is now back on dry land. And chapter three begins just like chapter one, with God asking Jonah to go to Nineveh and deliver his message to repent. But this time, Jonah obeys. He immediately travels to Nineveh, an enormous city, which is one of those cities that takes three days to walk from end to end. And this happens. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king said, all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. So we're in uncharted territory now. First, we have a prophet who disobeys God, which is not something that like, happened anytime else in the scriptures. Now we have an entire pagan city made of people who are basically the opposite of everything that Israel stood for, repenting and seeking God's forgiveness fasting to show their seriousness, hoping God might change his mind. The whole city repents. They do the 180, changing their ways from the king all the way down to, and I'm not making this up, the animals who are also told to fast. I mean, this is crazy. Imagine withholding food from your dogs for any length of time whatsoever. 
They were serious about this. And God sees them and relents and the judgment is finished and their punishment is spared. But the story's not done. So as the Ninevites are still fasting and sitting in their ashes, Jonah walks to a hillside overlooking the city and he sits down and he waits to see what's about to happen. And he waits and he waits and he waits until finally the 40 days have passed and he realizes nothing's happening. The judgment's been lifted. So to add to the unusual things that are going on here, he's the only prophet of Israel who ever delivered a successful message of repentance. And then this is where things get really weird. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die. So I guess we understand. Jonah didn't want to prophesy repentance to his mortal enemies, not because he didn't understand God, but because he did. He knew that God is a God who loves his creation. He knew that God would want to bring Jonah's mortal enemies back into the fold. And he knew what that would mean. Those he hated would now become his brethren. Being swallowed by the great fish didn't really seem to faze him. He never mentions it. But apparently the God of mercy and forgiveness does. As biblical scholar Rosemary Nixon writes, God is intent on his work of salvation despite the stubbornness of his people. And so this is where God has a few questions for Jonah. Namely, and the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Translation, seriously? God sees Jonah sitting there in the hot sun and he takes pity on him. He grows a plant for shade in which Jonah delights for a little while while he waits for the city to burn. But God also has a worm eat out the tree's root and it dies and Jonah falls back into his anger and self-pity. At which point God asks his question again. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And then the book ends. That's it. Which makes me wonder if maybe the question isn't really just for Jonah. Where are we in this story? Mercy was extended to three characters in our story. The chance to restore that broken relationship with their creator. But only two of them chose life. And it wasn't the ones we'd expect. The sailors saw God at work and they make vows and sacrifices to him. In other words, they pledged themselves to the God who actually saved them. The Ninevites heard that what they were doing was wrong, and so they chose new life in the chance that mercy would be offered to them by God. And he did. But Jonah 
Jonah comes out of the great fish and went through the motions, but he chose not to grow. The mercy extended to him didn't make it past him to others. The point is this. We all have things we need to die to in order that we can then begin to live the life that God intended. For the sailors, it was giving up their gods for the one true God. For the Ninevites, it was giving up their wickedness towards others. And for Jonah, it was giving up his prejudicial nationalism that would exclude the very people who his people were supposed to be blessing, the rest of the world. Are we the sailors? Are we the Ninevites? Are we Jonah? I'm going to pick up my guitar and we're going to put a few questions up on the screen here. Um, those little white pieces of paper you came in, the mystery paper. There's pencils around, uh, maybe artwork or words are not your thing and origami is. Whatever you want to do with that piece of paper now, just take a couple minutes and you can reflect on these questions. I hope it's been a good time of reflecting. Um, if you have questions, if you have things that have spurned thoughts that you want to process, if you've never given your life to Jesus before and you want to talk to one of the pastors about this, we are around, Diane, Ben, myself. There are other pastors here in the congregation too. We would love to have a conversation with you about that. The book of Jonah is traditionally read as part of the Jewish festival of Yom Kippur, which is called the Day of Atonement. As we close, let's pray together part of the prayer that is often prayed at the conclusion of this festival. Would you stand as you are able and join me? Let us repair what can still be repaired. Let us give back the gain we earned by injustice. Let us make peace with our injured brother. Let us restore the person we wronged. Let us admit what is false in ourselves. Let us put right what is wrong in our family life. Let us not sour the joy of living. May God give us the courage to do these things and help us to rebuild our lives. And when we have finished our tasks, may he permit us to enjoy the light shown for the righteous so he can delight in us. The gates of his mercy are still open. Let us enter in. Amen and amen.